Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jack. How are you guys? Good, thanks. Hi, Nate. Okay, so I've got two people on the call today. That's excellent news with a great background in the world of startups, previously ex-management consultants as well. So obviously they understand the audience very, very well. So there's a lot we can cover here because you guys have had a wide ranging career. But I want to start at the beginning. How did you guys go from being management consultants into the world of startups? Let's start with Matt. Uh, sure. So my first job out of college was at Mercer Management Consulting, which I loved. It was a great first job. I always tell people I probably should have paid them for the amount of education I got. And then my career path from there was I spent a couple of years at a venture capital firm, which called General Atlantic Partners. Mm-hmm. And from there, I moved to work for a relatively early stage tech company that was not one of the companies General Atlantic had invested in, but it was similar to all the companies that they had invested okay. in and was introduced to them through the firm. And, you know, sort of started off as like the CEO's special projects person, which is kind of what you're qualified to do after doing nothing but consulting and investing. Yeah. But after running, essentially starting and running an internet business inside of that company for five years, that's when I teamed up with Jack to start our first company, Return Path. So just so I understand this for the audience, you went from Mercer to General Atlantic Partners and within General Atlantic Partners, you started a business? No, no, sorry, sorry. From General Atlantic Partners, I went to a company called MoviePhone, which was a small cap public tech and media company, sort of pre-internet. Yeah. And I worked there for five years to build an internet business there from 1995, six, seven, eight, nine. And then after we sold MoviePhone to AOL, I partnered with Jack to start Return Path. Okay. And yourself, Jack? I started when I went to college wanting to be a banker. I left college wanting to be an entrepreneur, but for it's still difficult to start. Yeah. I wasn't able to start being an entrepreneur out of college. So I went into consulting, which I thought would be a great sort of platform. So I went to a company called Stern Stewart mm-hmm. to really just get a broad bit of experience, exposure. And Stern Stewart had a focus around more corporate finance consulting. And within, after three years there, I tried to start a company with a friend that built sort of corporate finance software for big consulting companies. When that didn't quite work, that's when I hooked up with Matt and we started Return Path. Okay. So you guys met about what, 20 years ago? Well, we probably met in 1993 or 1994 and started becoming more friendly in 1998 or 99. And then we started Return Path in 99. Well, you have a friendship that starts with 19. (laughs) Yes, yes. That's a long time, guys, and you're still friends, right? Yeah, Yeah, very much so. That's amazing. So so you guys went to return path, right? And there's a lot to cover here, but I want to keep it focused for the audience, right? Today, you guys work at a company called Bolster. Yes. So tell me about Bolster. I want to know how you've accumulated all of your startup knowledge and why you've put it together in this company, Bolster. I'm sure I'll, I'll start that one, Jack. So we ran and scaled Return Path for almost two decades. Uh, it was just about 20 years from founding to exit. 
And we built a, a fairly scaled technology company of about 100 million in revenue and about 500 employees around the world. And after we sold the company, Jack and I, along with a few other colleagues of ours from Return Path who had worked together for a very long time, decided that we really wanted to continue to work together. And I thought about some different options. We're all, you know, sort of doing some consulting work and, you know, some interim executive work at uh, some other companies. And we're trying to come up with the thing that was going to get us excited to, yeah. to start from scratch again. And I would say the kind of the combination of having spent a lot of time over the years mentoring startup CEOs and other executives at startups that we got introduced to through the venture capital firms that invested in Return Path or through tech stars, we had a lot of interest in doing something that was really a business about helping the startup ecosystem thrive. We had a lot of interest in doing something around people and leadership in particular. And that came together with a number of conversations we were having with our investors from Return Path and some potential investors and friends that we were talking to into uh, what is now Bolster. And I'll let Jack describe what Bolster is. Sure. At Bolster, we started the business, as Matt mentioned, is to be excited to start something from scratch again, to yes. sort of put all our knowledge into action. And what Bolster does is it connects venture-backed CEOs with fractional advisory and board-level, C-level executives. Okay. So it's essentially at its heart, it's a marketplace that's doing the connection sort of on demand. And it's sort of following one of our thesis is that, that the way uh, companies will scale from startup to a growth company, rather than hiring a whole executive team, will augment their executive team with sort of fractional C-level people as they need it, whether it's CFO, CMO, whatever it is. So basically, if I understand this correctly, what you're saying is that it's hard to find experienced, talented board members, CEOs, and COOs, and so on. So what you do is you pull them and you can borrow 12 hours of their time for advice and so on. Basically, yeah. That's what a fractional or what we call an on-demand executive is. It's actually quite a good idea. I can see the enormous value of having that because you know, oftentimes you just don't have the time and the money to find the right people. Yeah. You don't you even can, know you, where to find the right people. Right, right. So you, you, you don't need a full-time, very expensive yes. person. Yeah, right. that's true. So, so let's think about this. It's a very smart idea. I've seen this working in some of the industries. How do you guys run the business? So what, what's the business model? Is it just revenue from the fractional ownership or do you have other services you're offering and how do you brown this out well so the company's 16 months old so we're uh, you know sort of still very early on we are principally a marketplace so we make money on transactions in the marketplace it is free to join bolster as a ceo who or a founder who might want to search for talent yes it's free to join bolster as an executive who might be looking for a gig or a board role yeah, And it's very easy for clients to search for particular skill sets or projects and find executives. And when they match and hire someone through Bolster, we facilitate all of that, the match, the hiring, the billing, et cetera. And we add a take rate or a markup to that transaction. So that's principally how we make money. We also have a lot of software that we've built around the marketplace, software that's either for the executives to help them sort of run their consulting back office or software for our CEO and founder clients to help them identify what they need in the marketplace. But those things are really free, at least for now, to make the marketplace more useful and stickier for them. Yeah, I can see that being very useful because we have a lot of our clients who want to 
launch startups or join startups, and they always want recommendations and referrals for people who can advise them, uh, whether it's finding COOs and CEOs. But let's switch gears a little bit here, right? Obviously, you guys have written a book recently, which I read. I enjoyed it immensely. What I want to do now is imagine there's a listener on this call right now, someone in management consulting, investment banking, who wants to launch a startup. What advice would you give them? What is the one thing they need to know to start? I think the first thing that comes to mind is choose your founding partners wisely. Yeah. Make sure you have the right people with you from the beginning. What, why is that? Well, it's, it's a long road, yeah. first of all. So you want to make sure you're happy with the person you're with. But it's also a road that, that is not a straight line, right? There's a lot of ups and downs and yes. very difficult periods. And there's a lot of stress that comes involved. And there's a lot of just problems you need to solve together. Yeah. And in the end, you really have to be aligned with there's two, three, four, five founders in your group. You're all going to be doing lots of different things and you just have yes. to be on the same page. So for people listening to this, how do they know they need a co-founder? Why don't they just do it alone? Certainly an option. I find it a little more fun with co-founders first, yes. personally. I find you can you sort of multiply with each other. Yeah. So if you're really good founders and really good partners, yes. you're multipliers, if you will. It's just you're a little more effective. What are the criteria for those co-founders? I think that depends a little bit on, on who you are and a little bit on what the business is that you're trying to build. In our case at Bolster, we have a really unusual situation, which is that we have eight co-founders. Whoa, you guys uh, like to work in numbers, right? <laughs> that, that may be a record and it may be a dubious distinction. I'm not sure. But <laughs> for us, we had a whole group that had, as I said, had worked together for like 10 to 20 years yeah. and wanted to continue working together. And that's not normal. So ignore that for a minute. But I'll, I'll give you two of our co-founders that I think are you know, sort of emblematic of interesting things to look for in co-founders. So one is our co-founder, Sean Nosbaum, who is uh, at Return Path, was our chief product officer. Yeah. And he is by training an engineer and a chief technology officer. And it's one of the things we didn't have at Return Path. Jack and I were the co-founders and neither one of us was really a technologist. I mean, Jack sort of knew how to write code, as he said, from yeah. a prior startup, but neither of us is software engineers. And it's extraordinarily helpful to have a technical co-founder. Our co-founder, Jennifer Goldman, is an executive recruiter. And the business that we're building at Bolster is, is not an executive recruiting business, but it's a similar business. It's a marketplace yeah. to find executives and having a founder who comes from that space and has that domain expertise is extremely helpful because we obviously, as longtime senior executives, we know what the executive search business looks like as a user and as someone you know who's been headhunted before, but having someone who's been a practitioner as a founder is fantastic. So, you know, can you find people like that to be hired in and be on your senior team? Absolutely. But, I, you know, I think everyone knows there's something different about being a founder as yeah. opposed to being hired in. Having a couple pockets of expertise like that has been great. Okay. Makes sense. So when I asked you the question, you, you both immediately jumped on the co-founder thing. But when I speak to people in the market and clients, they immediately focus on the product. Do I have the right product? What am I going to do? So it's interesting how you prioritize that. So what would be the advice of people who are so focused on, do they have the right service, the right idea, the right product? If you don't have the right product, then you don't have a business. So, you know, getting a startup off the ground, it's the marriage of the right team, the right idea, and enough money to get it going. I think all three things are critical. I don't know that you can say one is more critical than, than the other, because you, you, you really do have to have all three in some form. Yeah. The way that companies build product now is so different than, than what it was 20 or 30 years ago, where you had an idea, 
you might have done a little research on it in the market. Then you wrote an extremely long MRD and PRD, right? A market yeah. requirement document, a product requirement document, and handed them to a team of engineers. And 12 months later, you <clears throat> you might have a product and it might or might not work and it might or might not be what the market wants. And since the lean startup revolution and all this great work pioneered by Eric Reese and Steve Blank and Ash Moria, you now really co-create product with customers and you do it in two-week sprints. And what that means is along the way, you're constantly learning, testing, iterating, and building what customers want. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're, we're big proponents of that methodology of getting a company going and think that's, that's hugely productive. And, and what I would say is the one caveat around that is you have to do two things along the way to make sure that that works. One is you actually have to get people paying you, mm-hmm. not just customers telling you they like something. Yes. And the other is you have to make sure that you're not building something too narrow. So we had this uh, at Return Path with a, a product that we developed internally many years after starting the company where we thought we had product market fit because we had a group of very enthusiastic customers who were paying us. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that the product was too narrow, that there were some people that were going to pay for it, but not enough. Yes. So you really have to be careful when you're co-creating product with customers to have a broad enough set of customers, a representative enough set of customers, small ones, big ones, different industries, different tenures, cohorts, et cetera, so that you can truly feel at the end of it that you have product market fit for a big enough market. That's a good point. You, know, you see a lot of companies, they put out a product or a service, they're paying customers, but there's no way to scale it because it's just that there's only a few people that will pay for it. The market is just not big enough for that product. It's a good product, but not enough people want to use it. So what are the examples of companies that are applying these principles well? Can you, do you have some stories of the best practices, how they're being applied so the audience can understand it better? Maybe, Jack, you want to take this one? I think a good one that comes to mind is a company called Carta. Carta, which- yes. Yeah, which help companies manage their equity. And it's just over time, it evolved so well. I mean, uh, with a lot of the customer input. And if you think about their market, their market is essentially all startups, like all companies that have, everybody has equity. So, and they did a great job sort of becoming the kind of first place people go to to help manage their equity. And it was also a, a problem that we all knew existed. This is the kind of thing where, Everybody had very poor ways to manage equity. Most people use spreadsheets until a certain, yeah, until yeah. really large, and it was a real problem. And then uh, I think Carter was the one that did a good enough job to have a, the product market fit done the right way. There were other companies that tried to solve it, and the product was never good enough. Yes, but Carter came along, had the best product. Now, you know, they're the dominant player. And what did Carter do that? Allowed them to become the dominant player. What did they do right that others? So, so the way I think about it, the Carter. What Carta did the best was they took processes yeah. and put them, made them a, service, a software as a service. So managing your equity, whether it's option grants, yes. new shares, those are all very manual processes yeah. that CFOs and, and directors of finance had to manage. And they managed it on the side of their desk, on a spreadsheet, tasks would pile up, uh, that they chase down signatures. And what Carta did was take all of that and automate it and put it into the cloud for you too. Yes. So option grants, option exercises, new securities, shareholder signatures, where before were all real pain points for a finance org. Now we're all automated. That's and- very interesting, right? I never thought about it that way, but it reminds me of the early days when you bought 
shares in a company in the 1900s, someone had to physically take the share certificate, go lodge it in a warehouse somewhere in the city of New York, and then it was automated. It's such a mundane process that you never think about. I mean, when I think about the world of startups, I never really think about the pain of managing your shares and your equity and so on. It's a mundane process. And the longer company <laughs> exists, the more it like just exacerbates the problem. They've built a process. They made it software as a service. As you said, they made it very easy to use. They took a, a pain point that everyone had and they created a product that was easy to use. And their model is you pay a subscription fee and you get access to the whole service. Mostly. I mean, mostly. you get most of the service for that one fee. There's some add-ons. They have more sort of late stage, more sophisticated processes. But for the most part, you're right. They, you get all the basics for that one fee. You know, and I think they did a good job iterating based upon customer feedback over the years. Which so so why didn't anyone else see that? Because I'm sure all startup founders are moaning in the bar about this every Friday. Maybe you want to take that, Matt? It's a good question. I mean, there are other companies out there that do what Carta does. I think they were first. And I don't know why others didn't see that as a business opportunity. I think that's the kind of thing that people didn't necessarily think about as a business opportunity because yeah. it wasn't really an existing category. So you can imagine a lot of ride sharing applications popped up around the same time. Yeah. Right? And that wasn't necessarily because there was a, an existing category of ride sharing, but the, the black car market and the taxi market were billions of dollars and, yes. and well-established in global industries. And that was sort of a different way of organizing an existing marketplace. But if you think about Carta, what Carta did is it took something that worked for free in spreadsheets, even though it was a little clunky yeah, and made it a thousand times better by standardizing it, putting it in the cloud and making it collaborative. So I, I'm not sure that was an obvious business innovation. I give Henry over there a lot of credit. I think he's built a phenomenal business. So, so you guys know the founders of Carta? We know them a bit. Yeah, we and they are in, in some of the same VC portfolios. Okay, sounds very interesting. You know, when you talk about Carta now, it seems obvious. I suppose all good ideas seem obvious. It's like the yeah. whole accounting industry, right? For a long time, you had these accountants working in spreadsheets. And then someone had the idea, why don't I build software that does all of the accounting work in the cloud? And now it's one of the biggest markets selling these accounting software systems and charging subscription fees to accounting firms who then rebundle it and charge their customers a subscription fee. So that's a good example of something that was built around a category that didn't really exist, right? But what happens when you're competing in a category that does exist? How do you differentiate yourself? How do you build a business where there's very clear competition? There's a practically a moat, switching costs are high. There's a lot of friction to move customers. Are there some good examples of that? Yeah, I mean, there, there are plenty of existing categories that have disruptors and sometimes switching costs are high and sometimes they're not high. But, uh, you know, someone said to me once early in my career that you can win by either being better, faster or cheaper, or certainly some combination of those things. Yes. So, you know, it sort of depends what category you're talking about. But if we're thinking about marketplaces, for example, I love Airbnb. Yeah. And, you know, 10 years ago, if you asked a thousand people, hey, how do you feel about staying in some yeah. stranger's house yeah. in some city you've never been to before, they would look at you like you were crazy. And now, you know, you ask a thousand people about that and they say, oh, Airbnb, VRBO, you know, great. There, there are all these places for that. So I think disruption from, so I would classify that under better, cheaper, and faster. I would classify that normally as, well, I actually, it's probably a little bit of all three. 
And then there's sort of an element of personal taste involved. But there are plenty of people, plenty of families where it's much easier to stay in a house than stay in a hotel and have multiple hotel rooms and have to pay for all your meals. And Airbnb can, in fact, be cheaper and it can be more convenient. So I think they can compete along all three dimensions. You know, a lot of our audience either works at these traditional established incumbents or they advise them. And what I want to know is, you know, just picking your brain here, we'll just use Airbnb as an example here. When Airbnb started doing well, and they were seen as a threat to the hotel chains, why didn't the hotel chains respond? It's a broader question of why doesn't the incumbent respond when they can see evidence that they're under attack? Well, the, the innovator's dilemma, you know, you can read Clay Christensen yeah. and lots of books about that. Usually when you get disrupted from below, like a low-end yes. product that's literally doing what you're doing, but just cheaper, that's where big companies really struggle because they yes. don't feel like they can make money at that and they, they get protective about their turf. Yeah, I think when you think about the hotel industry losing ground to Airbnb, I'm not sure they know what to do about it because it's not the same product. Yes, It's a substitute product. So the question is not that they don't want to respond and they don't see the threat and they're not talking about it. They really don't know how to respond. It's as simple as that. I mean, in some cases, obviously, not every case. So you want to add something, Jack? You know, I think that an example that came to mind when you're talking about this was Salesforce. Right? Yeah. So Salesforce, CRM, dominant player. I feel like I'm starting to get some more competition coming, as Matt mentioned, from the low end, some company like HubSpot. Things yeah. done really well the last handful of years, creating a lot of value for their shareholders, but also I think getting a lot more market share by starting with a product that's much cheaper, lower and targeted for brand new companies, because that is a product that has a high switching cost. CRM. Yes. It's very, yeah. it's very hard to switch out CRMs, which is one of the reasons Salesforce became so successful. But now what HubSpot has done is tried to get at company formation, get their product in the hands of founders where it's almost free. I mean, there you get almost the entire site for $100 a month for the first year of your company's formation. And they've done really well, I think, creating some good market share with that tactic. And that's something where Salesforce really can't do that. I mean, maybe okay. they could, but they choose not to. And I think that they've uh, had some challenges with HubSpot. Yeah, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal recently, there's a great story about how Chinese companies infiltrated the African market by offering really low cost solutions for you know, showing movies on phones and messaging and so on, and even banking. And the worry there is that American and European companies, they don't want to enter the market because it's not profitable enough, but they know in 10 years, it's going to be a cash cow that funds the Chinese to go into the European market and North American market. So it's a difficult situation because you know something bad is coming away, but you don't know what to do with it, right? Are there examples of companies, incumbents that have found a way to, to respond effectively to challenges? That's a good question. This is maybe an obvious answer, but I think Google has done a great job with some of their G Suite products, meaning yeah. like, uh, especially like the file sharing, like they had a bunch of competitors yes. pop up, right? Like Dropbox is in the yes. world. Yes. And I think they were able to evolve their product and use some of their other products to help sort of buoy that, that store. So I think still at this day, most startups are using G Suite yeah. for file, file sharing, file management and document storage, uh, where they could have easily been disrupted by a Dropbox. Yeah, we, we are now in the world when we call Google and incumbent. I mean, the world has changed. A lot. <laughs> I know, right? right. <laughs> it's come a long way in 20 years. But yeah, yeah. Google's a good example of this, right? Because the reason I, for example, use Dropbox and a lot of other file sharing services, but I have 
started using Gmail more, not because I made the conscious decision to switch to Google for file sharing, but because it's integrated into email so cleanly. So that, that ability to integrate a product into something you are using allows you to catch on. I mean, I think Dropbox has some add-ons and so on that allows you to link it into email, but it's such a painful process to set up and no one, I think, ever does it. I've never done it, right? So we've talked about some examples here of startups that have done things well. What about examples of startups that have not done things well? What are the lessons? I'm sure there's many examples, right? I, I can see Matthew smiling because maybe you want to start this one up. Well, no, I'm just smiling because they're not around anymore. So it's yeah. a, a little hard to, to sort of think back and remember them. I mean, look, there are certainly startups that it's not that they didn't do things well, it's that they didn't, didn't have their timing right. And that's one of the things I always say is that the timing and luck are so important in starting a business. And I can give you a lot of examples of those around timing and yeah, luck, where it's not necessarily an execution problem, but um, you know, Facebook was not the first thing like Facebook out yeah. there, right? There was Friendster, there was MySpace, yes. uh, and there were probably a bunch of others. And LinkedIn was not the first LinkedIn. There was a company called Plaxo, uh, and there was another one too. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but I, I think they were too early. They didn't have bad executions. I remember using them. They sort of worked like yeah. Facebook and LinkedIn, but the world wasn't ready for them yet. Yeah, I think that's something that people maybe take for granted that they always assume it's the idea is bad, the execution is bad, the team is not right. But sometimes it's a function of luck, right? You just enter the market too early. Because I remember in early 2000, lots of people were talking about sharing videos over mobile and so on, but the technology wasn't there. I mean, phones just didn't have the ability to do that. 5G wasn't around, so it was a very difficult thing to do. So how do you guys advise startup founders? I mean, what is the advice you give them? You can talk to them about many things, but how do you guide them along? You know, when someone's setting up, when someone's one year in, two years in, how do you manage that process? I'm not sure there's a generic answer to that. It, you know, it sort of depends on what, on what they need at any moment in time. I will say one of the things that I end up talking to, uh, to founders and CEOs about quite a bit is how to scale themselves. And being a founder or CEO of a, a $0 company is different than a $2 million revenue company, which is different yes. than a 5 or $10 million revenue company. And if you've never done that before, if you've never had that journey, you are probably missing some tools. You may have a lot of instinct and you may be, you may be just missing some tools or some experience around what is my job? What am I supposed to do? And how am I supposed to do it? And how am I supposed to prioritize things? Etc. So I, I certainly spent a lot of time doing that with with CEOs. But Jack, I don't know what, what was your, your experience like on the well, board. You I, I actually want to, want to want to continue this line, even if Jack's going to add. This is an interesting one. So I want to make sure I understand this, right? So what you're saying is that the way you manage your time is different if you got no money versus five hundred thousand revenue, million, two million, ten million, and so on, right? So here's a question: Both of you guys can can handle this one. How does someone? What do they need to change? There's only twenty four hours in the day, right? but they got more things coming in. So, so what do they need to start changing as they start getting in money, more things are happening? How do they, for lack of a better word, bring in and build a team? How do they pull themselves out of things? Uh, you know, one of the things I was gonna, I guess is sort of on, along that line is, is once you start to really have a company, right? You've, you're past, let's say you're past the bootstrap yes. stage. Uh, I think it, it's never too early at that point to make sure the foundations of the systems, the data, the processes are starting to be in good shape. But that I mean, like where all your data is living, yes. which 
where's the sources of truth for all the client data, your personnel data, your reporting? How is your accounting set up from a chart of accounts perspective so you can get accurate reporting, so you can make good decisions based upon good data? Because what will happen if you wait too long for that, your data becomes hard to get to as you grow. It becomes a little muddy, it becomes inconsistent. And the decisions you're making based on that data become tougher. Yes. So, but when it's early on, that's the time to do these things because they will scale much easier. There'll be time worth spending at that stage. You know, I once knew a founder who built a very successful business, but he just didn't want to bring anyone to help him. It's making millions, but one person doing all of this. And eventually it just became a bottleneck on everything. So I want to focus in on that. What advice do you give to founders on when they must make that transition? And because we have a lot of clients at that point where they're doing well, but they're so scared to hand over to a team. One of our longtime investors and and board members and friends, uh, Greg Sands from Costa Noa Venture Capital in Silicon Valley, has a great uh, sort of saying around this, which is, uh, you know, sort of the comparison of you know, of a startup or, or a founder in a startup or team in the startup to like a single cell organism. And so at the beginning, you're a single cell organism. You have to do everything. Everyone, like there's only one, only one yeah. cell. And then you can replicate the cell and then you have a couple cells that are both capable of doing everything. And, you know, as the organism grows and develops and matures, at some point the cells start to become specialized. And then at some point you have cells that are a liver and a heart and skin yeah. and lungs, as opposed to every every cell doing the same thing. And the evolution of a startup is exactly the same way. At the beginning, whether it's one founder or a team of five or 10 or 15, yeah. there's a lot of swarm. And that's just how you get things done. And you need people in really early stage companies that are generalists, that are fearless, that are no task is too small and no task is too large. Yeah. But the only way to scale a business is to start having some specialization of role. And, you know, I don't know that there's a, a magic answer to your question of like, when do you do that? Because every role is going to be different. And it's actually one of the things we talk about in, in Startup CXO in the book, sort yeah. of when do you know you need a CFO? Yes, when do you know you need a head of sales? And it's, it's different for every business and for every role. But the common themes around those things, like when do you know you need a blank, are something like this, either you as the founder are spending too much of your time managing the details of that area of the business board or your investors ask you some question about something in the business and you actually like, you don't have an answer to it and you're not even sure how to get an answer to it. Mm, Yes. Or my third thing is always the middle of the night test. Like you wake up in the middle of the night and you are like with a cold sweat because something's wrong in that area of the business and you're just not on top of it. So, you know, I always say, when do you know you need a CFO? It's because you wake up in the middle of the night and you're really concerned about cash and you're not quite sure if when your burn is done and are you running out of it and how you're going to get a handle on that? Like, okay, that now it's time for a CFO, whether you need a full-time CFO or a part-time CFO or just a controller or something like that is going to be a different question depending on the business. But the short answer is when it's all too much for you. Yeah. I mean, with this guy, I remember speaking to him and with him, it was similar things, as you said. I mean, the cold sweat at night, I heard that one many times. But in his case, also, he couldn't grow anymore unless he brought in people. He was constraining growth. The other uh, thing I tell people at that stage is uh, is Tom Peters' quote, uh, you are your calendar, right? So you are your calendar. So if you're spending day as CFO and I'm I'm also running legal, if I'm looking at contracts half the time, I, I track my... You audit my calendar. It looks like I'm spending half my time 
looking at agreements, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a CFO. So yeah. I should be hiring a lawyer. Or if you're a CEO and you're spending all your time on sales calls, maybe that's appropriate. Maybe you should be the salesperson. As I say, but at some point you shouldn't be the salesperson. Yes. So I think that we like that, that technique of audit your calendar over a two week period and it'll kind of give you some, some insight. So let's assume the founder takes this good advice you guys have given him or her and they bring in some specialists, right? So the founder now has more time available. The calendar is cleaned up. You know, one thing I've seen with founders is then they're so used to being busy is they like to be busy and do things that are not really good for the business. Now, how do you coach them to focus on the next thing that's going to grow the business as opposed to being busy? What advice do you have for them there? The job of a founder of a CEO is a combination of do the things that you alone can do. Oh, I like that. That's nice. Right? Do nice. the things that you're, you must do, right? That your job requires you to do. Next on the list is do the things that you're best at. And if you think about the, you know, sort of first two things in the, in the construct of a normal founder or normal CEO, like there are things that CEOs do. They run their board meetings, they go raise money, you know, they lead all hands meetings. Like there are things that, that are just part of your job description that you must do. Mm -hmm. There are going to be some things that you are sort of uniquely qualified to do for some reason even if you're not spending a huge amount of time selling anymore, for example, to riff off of Jack's last uh, uh, last comment, yeah. if you have to go save a big client from walking out the door, you might be uniquely qualified to do that as the founder, right? Yeah. You might have to go get on a plane, even today, get on a plane yes. and go make some promises and some commitments and some apologies and save that customer. No one else in the organization can do that. And the third one is a little trickier, which is do the things that you are best at because you might be best at doing a bunch of activities that you're better off having other people do. So that's the one that where it's a little bit tricky. Like if you're a technical founder, for example, you might be the best coder in the, in the company, but it's not necessarily the best use of your time to do that. So that's why I sort of put that one third on the list after you know things in your job and things that, that only you can do. So just to summarize it, just to make sure the audience remembers it, the three things you must do, things you have to do, and things you have right. to do. Things, things that, are, that, are, that, that, are, that you must do, things that are your job, your job to do as the CEO. And the second is things that you are uniquely qualified to do. No one else can do them. And then the third area would be some things where maybe you're the best person at doing them, but not uniquely qualified to do them. You know what's interesting about this discussion? This doesn't just apply to startups, right? This is just good business advice. You know, we talk a lot about what do startups need to do, but if you listen to this conversation, I would give this advice to any executive client anywhere in the world. It's, it's just sound business advice. In fact, I was speaking to the EVP of a bank, wealth management division, right? Massive bank, billions of dollars under assets. And he was telling me how he had to get on a plane and fly to Asia to keep a family office happy because he was the only one who could do that. But it's not his job because obviously he has people beneath him, several layers who are based in Asia, who speak that language and know that office very well. But he had to take away three days of his life to go speak to one client. And it wasn't even the biggest income generator, but he said that he had to show this family that he cared so other clients knew they cared about them. It's an interesting thing because it's exactly what you're saying, but we talk about startups, but here's the same advice for a major company. And that's the interesting thing when I was reading your book and the work you guys are doing. It's, it's not just about startups. It's just good business advice, right? Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of, some of it was very specific. It was early stage pieces, some of the legal yeah. requirements, finance requirements, raising monies. 
that kind of stuff is all a uh, startup-y, but you're right. A lot of this stuff can be applied throughout a company's uh, life cycle. You know, I was just gonna say what's interesting, you know, think back to something Jack said at the beginning of the conversation, which is he didn't start a business right out of college because because <laughs> you couldn't or you didn't. Yeah. And that's true. In the 1990s, like you didn't start a business right out of college, one in a million, right? So Bill Gates yeah. dropped out of college and started a company, but that wasn't the path. Like you, you felt like you didn't know enough to start a business. So you worked for a bunch of years. And I, I remember when we started Return Path, we were 29. And even then we felt like, all right, we're only sort of barely know parts of yeah. what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And like, you think about the world today and Paul Graham from Y Combinator, uh, who I don't know, I, I read some quote of his, which is like, if you're over 30 and you're starting a business, everybody looks at you funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, we mentor CEOs and founders all the time who are never had a job anywhere else. Yeah. Um, I'm working with a company right now where they're in college and they're starting a, a marketplace that's a, a little bit like Bolster in, in some ways. So I'm having a lot of fun with them, but they're not even done with college. They've never had a summer and they've never had a job. Maybe they had one summer job somewhere. So I think the willingness to just go out there and create things and innovate and disrupt is really high. That passion is really high with a lot of people. And they sort of figure like, all right, well, whatever, I'll learn, the, I'll learn that stuff as I go. Yeah. It's one of the reasons that uh, organizations like Y Combinator and Techstars exist and why they've been doing so well. You know, quite frankly, it's one of the reasons that Bolster exists. It's the reason that our books exist. Yeah. So, you know, coming back to that college example, right? And a common question we get asked is, does it help to have an MBA if you want to go to the sort of, you know, should you get it? Is it going to give you an advantage? Is it a waste of time? Is it two years, $300,000 that you can regret later? I have to ask you that question. You're talking to two people who don't have one here. So <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. You just answer the question. Right? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had that question many times. Usually I tell people is that, look, if, if you need to change the direction of your career, you yeah. know, you're coming from one area and you really want to get into business and the MBA will help you build a network, will help you get a foundation that maybe you didn't have because of your first five years out, three years out. Um, maybe it makes sense. Otherwise, you know, I don't tell people, I'm not sure. It makes sense. Uh, I, I had an old entrepreneur professor that said, you know, basically no reason to get MBA. The only grad degree that may be helpful for you as an entrepreneur is a legal degree because you will use that all the time. <laughs> but if you, like, you have to go to or grad school, go to law school. Otherwise don't go to grad school. That was my entrepreneur. Computer science. You know, I think Jack's right. I think, you know, if you're changing career, MBA makes a lot of sense. If you want the, if you are missing a business network, it's fantastic. An MBA from a top tier school gives you a, a pedigree, which is really important in some pocket of the business world. Yeah. Not all, but some, you know, look, sometimes it just gives you more confidence. Sometimes it helps you specialize in something, but obviously neither of us ever went back and got one. And I, I don't feel like it's the absence of that has, has held me back in my career. And if I'm trying to hire someone, you know, I value that the experience of having been to business school for sure, I don't necessarily value it more than two additional years of work experience, you know, like for like. So basically there's no right answer. It's you got to think for yourself and see what you're missing and how an MBA is going to help you. In terms of the Boston network, right? Looking at the people you have in there, is it specialists, business people? What's the mix up there? It's primarily C-level executives or where there are C-level executives in their past that are now interested in board work. They're interested in advisory work, interim roles. There's some of the network, which is uh, full-time people that just want to be uh, on the network. But for the most part, it's, it's very, uh, people have been very senior in their careers, primarily in, in technology. Okay. So the, basically uh, 
the market seems to want this experience of having led something at a senior level. That's not to say the market doesn't want technical skills, but the work you guys are doing are bringing those senior people have the experience that can provide that guiding hand. Correct. But it's across, um, and again, this is sort of bolsters business. It's across all functional areas. Okay. So, so finance, have, CTO we, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we have 5,000 executives in our network and, and that that's growing by, you know, hundred plus per week. And if we, if we look at the breakdown of that, we have seven or 800 people who've been CEOs. We have 500 plus people who've been CMO, same who've been heads of business or corporate development or CFOs or COOs then slightly smaller number, but still in the, you know, sort of two to 400 range of people who've been chief technology officer, chief product officer, heads of sales, heads of HR, general counsel. So it, it sort of across, across any executive function. We live in the golden age of outsourcing when you can outsource your CFO, right? It's a wonderful thing. Guys, thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed it. Is there anything you want to add? Any words of advice for our audience before we wrap up? One thing I would add as a piece of advice for founders that I always give is never be afraid to ask for help. The startup ecosystem in particular is full of people who are happy to drop what they're doing and spend a few minutes with you to help explain something, help educate you, help, just help. So never be afraid to ask for help. It's not a weakness, right? Some people see it as a weakness. It's a sign of strength to know what you don't know and ask for help. Is there anything you want to add, Jeff? No, that's a great one. And I think that's how business is done these days in startups, right? You're, you're using your networks, you're asking, you know, uh, questions all the time for people's experiences. So I love, I love that answer. Guys, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. I think our audience is going to love it. Hopefully you guys keep in touch and we'll let you know how we're going to publish this dates and so on. Okay. Great. Terrific. Thank you. It was great. Ciao guys. All right. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.